Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Cesar Brioso, author of Last Seasons in Havana, The Castro Revolution, and the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. Cesar, thanks for being with us today. Oh, I'm glad to do it, Bob. Thanks. Cesar is a digital producer and former baseball editor for USA Today Sports, and he has more than 25 years under his belt as a journalist writing for the Miami Herald and also for the South Florida Sun Sentinel. And he was also a team leader at the Tampa Tribune for several years. His first book was Havana Hardball, Spring Training, Jackie Robinson and the Cuban League, which was published in 2015. Caesar, give the listener a little bit of background about yourself, your education, and and your professional career that I haven't mentioned. Uh, Well, I I went to the University of Florida and got a a degree in journalism and uh, started working uh, newspapers. My first uh, job was at the Ocala Star Banner. And that's kind of where this whole uh, project with the two books that you mentioned uh, started, because there were some of the players who had played in Cuba uh, during the uh, 40s and 50s were retirees in our circulation area. And I started uh, sort of hunting them down for interviews uh, for the paper, uh, with eventually the idea of uh, hopefully hoping to write a book about uh, baseball in Cuba. And, of course, you write a, a blog about Cuban baseball right now, too. Yeah, in fact, the, the blog is really what got me the, uh, the first book. Uh, you know, I'd been kind of uh, gathering interviews and, and doing research, uh, but didn't really have an entree into the publishing uh, uh, business mm-hmm. and wasn't sure how to get a book published. And at some point, I guess uh, about 2005, I just kind of decided, you know what, I'm going to blog about uh, Cuban baseball history. I, d- I don't care if anybody else reads it except me, but it was, it was sort of going to be my, my outlet for, for all this material that I'd gathered. And fortunately, I, one day I got a, an email from a former journalism professor. Uh, he's a published author, and, and he asked me if I, had any, if I had a publisher for all the material I was uh, putting together. And I said, no, I don't. Why? You know someone? And, and he said it, he might. So he put me in touch with the University Press of Florida and and that's how the first book, Havana Hardball, came to be. Right. So certainly, this this new book, I mean, is, is at least partially a project that's uh, you know extremely personal for you. You were born in Havana, and you had family members who were impacted by the by Castro's takeover. Um, what stories do you remember your family talking about as far as Cuba and and baseball in Cuba? I mean, it could be political, it could be it could be baseball as well. Well, you know, my my interest in this really started because of my dad. When I was a kid, he would tell me about. Uh, all these uh, American players who would come to Cuba in the winter and, and play in the Cuban League. Uh, you know, people like uh, Tom Lasorda and Monty Irvin, uh, Ray Dandridge, uh, Max Lanier. My dad would tell me these stories. And, you know, as a kid, you know, I, I listened, but uh, I was more interested in the games that were happening in the present time. Uh, but as I grew older and I grew to appreciate the, the history of baseball, um, I, I started to, to and, and realize some of the players he was telling me about were you know, were Hall of Famers and, and that sort of thing. 
I became more and more interested. And, and then uh, finally, when I, I became a, a sports writer, um, you know, it was just a natural thing that I wanted to kind of find these guys uh, and talk to them about uh, about their experiences in Cuba. And your first book, you know, focuses on one season, which was the monumental season when Jackie Robinson made his debut in, in the spring of 1947. What made you decide to focus on on the final years of the 1950s? Well, this uh, this book last season in Havana really just is kind of picks up where the first book left off. Uh, you know, in the first book, as you know, um, it was the this sort of uh, what, maybe the best uh, season in Cuban league history, or at least the the finale was uh, this epic uh, three game series between Alana and Almendares. Uh, the eternal rivals of the Cuban League. And as they were finishing that, Jackie Robinson, the Dodgers, and the Montreal Royals arrived in Havana for spring training in 1947. Um, and, and also sort of, a, you know, this was also happening at the same time that the Mexican League was raiding players from, from the majors, uh, and that impacted the Cuban League that year. Uh, so what ends up happening at, at the end of Havana hardball, uh, the Cuban League... Uh, uh, has a, a truce with major with the organized baseball and comes under the umbrella of organized baseball. So this is this book, the new one is is really sort of what happens to the Cuban League after that. Uh, at, you know the uh, the uh, truce with organized baseball sort of sort of sets forth the rules by which the Cuban League uh, can sign players from uh, from from the majors and the minors. Uh, before uh, it had been uh, the, the Cuban League had a, a certain amount of autonomy. They the managers and owners uh, basically used their connections in the Negro Leagues and in the majors uh, from having played there uh, to sort of sign the players as they and recruit players as they saw fit. Um, now, with them being under the uh, the umbrella of organized baseball, it, it sort of codified how they would get players. And uh, you know, the the Cuban League uh, does very well in, into the 50s, uh, but then things uh, uh, start to change, not just for baseball but for the country. Um, when Castro um, arrives in the uh, mountains in the eastern province of Oriente and starts uh, a guerrilla war against uh, Batista, the the uh, dictator of Cuba at the time. Right. And I guess uh, to that point, I mean, Cuban baseball was was fairly healthy. And when they got the franchise in the International League, it was like, uh, I think in your book, you said they're like one step away, from, you know, getting a major league franchise. And I'm sure that was a, a dream of, of a lot of, you know, baseball fans in, in Cuba. Yeah, well, it was an explicit dream of uh, Bobby Maduro. He he uh, built the El Gran Stadium uh, of Havana in 1946 for the Cuban League, um, and but he uh, in, uh, eventually bought the uh, Class B Havana Cubans of the Florida International League, and then moved that team to AAA as the uh, Havana Sugar Kings. That was in 1954. Um, so you know the the AAA team in Cuba started. Uh, Right when, um, uh, right before Castro's revolution uh, really started to to uh, uh, to pick up, and um, you know the the, uh, the motto of the Sugar Kings was in Spanish, "Un paso más y llegamos." One more step, and we get there. And that wasn't just an allusion to the uh, players in AAA being one step from the majors. It was also um, Bobby Maduro's goal to bring uh, an expansion team to Havana at some point. You know, uh, many readers, including myself, I mean, they always had this view of pre-Castro Cuba. You know, we get it all from Godfather Part Two. You know, with Hyman Roth sitting on the hotel and saying, you know, we got great partnership with the government and whatever. 
Um, but really, what was what was a real Cuba like during that that final decade of the fifties when Batista was in power? Yeah, I mean that that's the uh, the the mob uh, that that you sort of see depicted in The Godfather is obviously uh, Hollywoodized, the Hollywood version of it. But but they were there. Uh, Meyer Lansky and and Santo Traficante they they were there. They they either owned or had. Uh, uh, control or had partial control of uh, several different casinos, uh, and they operated uh, sort of uh, in plain sight. Uh, I mean, remember, you know, gambling and casinos was uh, legal, um, so that it wasn't like they were, uh, at least as far as that, doing anything that was uh, uh, against the law. So it was, I guess, you know, you could say this was their legitimate business at, uh, in, in a way, uh, uh, and they certainly had. Uh, their, uh, you know, they probably did have their influence. It probably was not uh, as great as some some books and movies portray it. Uh, but they they operated there and 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 uh, and but I think operated sort of legitimately, if if you can uh, say that. You know, in in your book, I mean, you hooked me right at the beginning there, where you start with the first anecdote, where you're talking about soldiers sitting in the stands during opening night the Sugar Kings waiting to see if the, the coup against Batista was going to come off. Um, what year was that, by the way? I meant to ask. Well, that, that's what I couldn't pin down specifically. I knew it was, uh, and it wasn't soldiers. These were just sort of, these were regular people. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, but they were against the Batista regime. Uh, and they sort of were, you know, it was, uh, I, I know it happened in the inaugural game. And I know it happened before the, uh, there was an attack on the presidential palace in March of 1957. So that would mean that it either happened in uh, 54, 55, or 56. Uh, and this is, and the story you're talking about is actually my uncle. He was one of those conspirators. Um, and they were um, sitting in the, in the top rows of the stand waiting for a signal uh, to tell them that another group had uh, successfully attacked Batista's motorcade. And they were going to go uh, storm uh, a, a police uh, substation uh, and, and basically start to the overthrow of Batista. The idea was to put uh, Carlos Prio Socaras back in power. He was the he had been the elected president of Cuba, who Batista had overthrown in 1952. Uh, but the signal never came, and the game ended. And they just what ended up happening was that the the motorcade had taken a different route, and uh, and and so they. Um, I, I think they, they they sort of scattered and, and ditched whatever arms they may have had uh, in, in case they were uh, found out. And to sidetrack to your uncle too. I mean, you note in your introduction of the preface where you know he was anti-Batista, but he sort of ran afoul of Castro early on in, in his in his regime. Can you talk about that? Yeah, he he was um, in the uh, sort of the the bus drivers union, and right after the revolution, uh, you know. The, the Castro regime started putting its own people uh, in key places and kind of rounded up everybody that was in that union. And he got caught up in that and ended up uh, uh, about a month and a half at La Cabana Fortress uh, and was very fortunate to be let out. Uh, at somebody uh, spoke on his behalf, uh, basically to let them know that he wasn't a, a Batista supporter before the revolution and, and he was able to get out. But a uh, very scary time for him. Oh, no doubt. And and I know you, you also wrote that your family was sort of split as far as uh, yeah. Castro and anti-Castro. Yeah, my grandfather was one of uh, 11 siblings and four or five of them 
uh, sympathized with the with the the Castro Revolution and became communist, and that led to a lot of uh, family arguments. And uh, if those that didn't uh, support the the revolution were essentially ostracized uh, from the rest of the family, sometimes never to to speak again. Um, in fact, one um, I guess it would be uh, you know one of the sons of of of, of my grandfather's brothers um, lived in Tampa and I tried to reach out to him when we were down there and I just ne- and never responded. Uh, feelings, feelings run deep. Yeah. What I also found interesting in, in the book was the, uh, the influx of American baseball players who competed in the winter season in Cuba. I mean, guys like Tommy Lasorda and, and others. And what was, what was the attraction for these guys to come off to the, to the um, Cuban leagues or the winter leagues? After after major league season, although some of them were in the minors, maybe they were trying to get to the majors. But what was the attraction for them? Well, you know, this is a time before all the big contracts that we see today. So for a lot of these players, if you weren't a star, uh, you know, when the season ended, you had to kind of go get a a real job for the off season, uh, work at a, a hardware store in, in in your hometown or wherever. Um, so if you had the choice of uh, getting a real job or going to play uh, baseball in the tropics. You know that seems like a pretty easy choice. Uh, they were they were well paid. They were taken care of um, in Cuba. Uh, you know the, they'd be set up with a uh, a nice place to stay. Um, the the Cuban Winter League uh, might have only played uh, you know maybe four games a week, uh, so there was downtime that they could in, enjoy. Uh, whether it be the beaches, the casinos, the horse track, uh, so it was kind of a, a working vacation as well as uh, you know staying in shape, getting paid uh, a decent amount. Um, and, uh, you know, having a, a lot of times they would bring their families down there with them, um, the wives and kids. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of a, uh, a working vacation. And well, I mean, obviously as, as the decade got later and then Castro became more prominent, they had to be kind of a little bit leery about what was going on there. Sure. There was a, you know, after, after Castro took over, um, there started to be these counter-revolutionary, uh, moves, uh, you know, the, the, Previous uh, uh, le- previous leaders, um, you know, some of them in exile in in the United States were funding anti uh, Castro uh, uh, revolution themselves. Uh, you know, it, it started to become obvious that uh, things were were drifting toward communism. Uh, he, you know, he uh, began uh, expropriating lands, and then as as tensions and and relations deteriorated with the U.S., uh, you know, there were like they, they started getting closer to the Soviet Union. Uh, so there were concerns about what might happen. Um, uh, you know, the for the Sugar Kings, the International League uh, started coming up with contingency plans in case they needed to relocate the, the, the franchise. Uh, sometimes uh, major league teams were not, uh, did not want um, or, or wondered if they should have their players playing in, in the Cuban League. Uh, but for the most part, you know, the players were safe. There was one uh, incident uh, um, in the book. Uh, I describe it. This was in a uh, Sugar Kings game in uh, 1959. Um, it was the anniversary of the uh, 26th of July movement, Castro's revolution. And when the, the it, this was a game between the Sugar Kings um, and the Red Wings and when Rochester Red Wings and when the uh, clock struck 12, uh, Soldiers uh, outside the stadium started firing off and firing off guns, and apparently some stray bullets uh, hit guys inside the stadium. Uh, 
uh, Leo Cardenas, a shortstop for the Sugar Kings, and Frank Verdi, who was uh, uh, coaching third base at the time, uh, both got struck. The game uh, was stopped, and the, uh, the Redwoods refused to finish the next day, the series the next day, and left town. But even with that, uh, you know, the team was did not, you know, stayed in Havana, and the, and the season continued. Yeah, and and the thing with with Castro going back to his um, his movement and everything, he, he insisted for the longest time that he wasn't a communist. Yeah, uh, even though he had, you know, his brother was uh, Raúl was, and he had Che Guevara, who was definitely a communist. Uh, you know, some have tried to say that uh, uh, he might have just sort of stumbled or or, or kind of worked his way toward communism, uh, but I've seen you know Castro biographers who said that he basically had uh, almost a shadow government. Uh, you know, he he continued the uh, even though there was a president that they, that he installed, he he had the position of prime minister, and was uh, and that this group that included his brother Che Guevara and others, uh, Camilo Pascual, excuse me, uh, Camilo Sanfuegos, uh, that they were basically intent on on making Cuba uh, a, a Marxist-Leninist. Uh, Right. We'll talk about Camilo Pasquale now. That's what another thing I found interesting in the book was the backstory for some of these players, like Pasquale and, and Orlando Pena. I mean, I remember Pasquale pitching in the in the '60s, and he probably had one of the best curveballs that anybody's ever seen. And I always wondered, you know, because especially because his record in the majors was kind of you know around 500. I just wondered if he ever overworked himself pitching in the majors and in the winter leagues. I mean, he was he was quite a quite a pitcher in, in the in the winter leagues. Yeah, well, and uh, yeah, he was a terrific uh, pitcher. Everybody talked about that curveball that you mentioned, uh, and but he did have some arm trouble. Um, and you know, was that because of, of pitching in the winter uh, in Cuba, uh, or did he just hurt it? Did he just hurt it, and it, it just impacted his uh, effectiveness? Uh, you know, I, I guess th- there was a, there was a couple of seasons where he didn't play, uh, kind of uh, at the insistence of uh, the team uh, trying to protect him. Uh, but yeah, uh, he he was a uh, a heck of a pitcher, and and probably his his record doesn't really in majors doesn't really show uh, how how good he was. Yeah, and I think Pena is another example. I remember looking at his baseball cards in the '60s, and I was like, yeah, whatever, you know. But he had some. He was dynamite in Cuba. In, yeah. Is it just a? I mean, it's a the the Cuban league was probably how I've heard it described to me was somewhere between AAA and the majors. Uh, in terms of the uh, the quality of play, um, so you know, uh, you know, you didn't have like uh, maybe the top echelon major leaguers uh, playing, or at least you know what what you had were guys who were on their way up who would become good players. Like uh, you know, Brooks Robinson played a season there. Uh, you know, for example, um, you know uh, uh, Don Newcomb, just kind of uh, Joe Black, uh, Hoyt Wilhelm. Uh, you know, so they they had players who went on to great careers, but in a lot of cases you were catching them early in their career. There, once they had the uh, the agreement with organized baseball, um, you know that they, they they had to be of a certain um, experience level. If it went beyond that, they they couldn't they couldn't play in in the in the Cuban league. Um, Cuban Cuban born players, of course, were, were exempt from from those restrictions. Uh, but, uh, you know, you weren't getting necessarily guys who were, you know, it had been in the majors for five, five, six years, uh, and were really starting to establish themselves, but you were getting the guys as they were coming up. It would be like, if you were, um, a fan here at a, you know, 
and you would be going to AAA games, you'd see the guys who would become stars, uh, you know, in in the future. But you were you were getting them at uh, while they were still developing. Right. You know, it was I also found it interesting. I mean, I wondered why the Washington Centers were such a beneficiary of Cuban talent because Clark Griffith and then Calvin Griffith were not exactly progressive guys in terms of race and race and ethnicity. I mean, how how did the Senators benefit so well from from all these guys? Well, because they had uh, Scout Joe Cambria, who uh, pretty much lived down there, Papa Joe, uh, and he signed like uh, three to four hundred uh, Cuban players, and he signed them on the cheap. Um, so he, he was just signing up any players he could, and with that sort of stockpile, you know, some of those guys went on to uh, to make it, uh, you know, to play for uh, for the Senators. Uh, but that was basically it. Uh, I think it was, you know, Cuba was a a source of of cheap talent for. Uh, for the senators, oh, and the Griffiths were were big on being cheap. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> talk about uh, Bobby Maduro again. What kind of impact did he have on baseball in Cuba? Well, I mean, he's he's uh, beloved by uh, people who uh, uh, played for him and worked with him and knew him. Um, you know, like I said, he he uh, built the the stadium, which still exists. It's uh, Estadio Latino Americano, which is where the Rays played uh, the Cuban national. Uh, league team in that spring training game a, a few years ago. Yeah, 2015. Uh, so that that yeah that 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 still exists. That's that's the ballpark uh, where the and the, the Cuban League, uh, the four teams they all played in that same stadium. Uh, you know, so there wasn't there wasn't travel. They didn't have to go to the other cities, even though uh, the teams had names for for other parts of the country. All of them played right there in Havana. Uh, you know, I kind of described it in the first book, uh, like if you. If you want to look at the New York of the 50s with the Yankees, Giants, and Dodgers, throw in the Mets and have them play at a brand new Yankee stadium. You know, that was kind of uh, what you were dealing with uh, down there. And, you know, that was because he built that stadium before they had been in a, the, the league had been in a stadium that was a little further outside. It wasn't a baseball only stadium. It was, uh, you know, it, it could uh, accommodate soccer and, and track and field and, uh, this was a baseball-only stadium, and that was Maduro's doing. Um, you know, and then of, of of course the whole, you know, pushing to to get the the Class B team uh, into AAA, uh, pushing to uh, you know potentially, hopefully get a a major league team in Havana. Um, so he he was a you know he he owned one of the Cuban league teams. He was a had a huge impact on. Uh, baseball in Cuba in the 40s and 50s. And he really had to be devastated when he had to give up the team and then it went moved to Jersey City. I know he came back in some capacity, but that just had to be like just shattering. Well, yeah, I mean, he basically, he ended up losing everything. The, the team was moved while they were on the road. Um, uh, just tensions and, and had just gotten to the point where uh, the International League president, uh, uh, Frank Shaughnessy, just said... We're, they're moving. Um, he was not happy about it. Um, you know, the, the manager of the team ended up coming back, but most of the players ended up staying when they moved to Jersey City uh, in the middle of the 1960 season. Um, and Maduro was eventually able to uh, to to get out of Cuba. His 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 family had had come over first, uh, and then he uh, sort of rejoined the the, the Jersey City Jerseys. That what the, that's what they were called uh, in uh, in. Uh, 1961, um, and then eventually he he and the team moved to uh, Jacksonville as the Jacksonville Suns, 
Um, and then eventually, he, he a couple of years later, he, he ended up selling the team. But he worked the, in the commissioner's office um, for baseball. Um, the, they, the Miami Stadium, which had been the home of the uh, minor league Miami Marlins back in the day, and and also the uh, Orioles spring training home was renamed uh, for him. Uh, so yeah, he was uh, he was a, a huge figure in Cuban baseball. I also like in the book how you address the legend, this legend that's been going on for years about Fidel Castro having some sort of talent as a pitcher and how the whole Cuban revolution might have never happened if some team had signed Fidel to a minor league deal. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know all, that start. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, it really is the, the stuff of urban legend. Uh, you know, it, the, the first reference I could find to any sort of, um, you know, discussion of what Fidel Castro's baseball talent was, was, uh, uh, Joe Cambria, uh, kind of an offhand remark that he kind of, that he saw him uh, watched him pitch at one point, and that he thought he was basically not much more than a than a minor leaguer. Um, you know, now he Fidel was an athlete. He had played like basketball and volleyball in in, in college, and um, as uh, uh, Ralph Avila, who used to be the uh, Dodgers uh, uh, Latin American scouting director for years, you know, he said, you know, like like all Cubans, he played. Uh, baseball, you know, pick up games, but in terms of actually being a prospect, that just really was never the case. But every time it, the story was retold, it just seemed to grow and grow and grow uh, to the point where in, in one magazine article, a, a you know, player who, who had played in the Cuban League, you know, recounted this story of Castro climbing out of the stands and taking over the mound and, and, and pitching to him. Um, but all the details, including what, what team he was on and who he played for, were, were just not did not fit the the facts uh, so it just never happened but uh yeah it's kind of amazing how that uh oh, it gr- became it grows seen. every year i mean it, during his yeah. lifetime <laughs> and gosh yeah and i'm sure he was uh glad to to, to let it uh, continue to oh, grow definitely but, so yeah but yeah that was totally an urban legend <laughs> also um one of the of all the people you interviewed you you came across a guy that was a bat boy in uh for jersey city the, the first year they're up there, Al Lopez Chavez. Talk about how how he how you connected with him. Yeah, that was great. Um, I was uh, doing a, a book signing uh, in Miami for the first book, and this gentleman comes up and he he has his phone with him, and he he shows me his phone, and it's a photo of him as a, as a little boy in a in an Almendares, one of the teams in Cuba, wearing an Almendares uh, uniform. And he's on the field with uh, Roberto Ortiz, who who played with the Senators at one point. He was a big star in the Cuban in the Cuban League, and he's like that. That's me. And and so uh, I, he started talking, and that's when he said that he, he 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 said he was a bad boy for the for the Sugar Kings. And I'm like, well, I need to talk to you. Um, so I got his 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 information. I called him, uh, and that's when he told me about the the fact that the you know it wasn't really the Sugar Kings. The Sugar Kings had moved to Jersey City, and in their their uh, in 1961, he um, uh, he uh, did a composition uh, to contest to be one of the bad boys, and he ended up winning. Uh, so he was the uh, the bad boy for the Jersey City jerseys in 1961. Uh, uh, you know, then he he was from Cuba. Uh, his family had moved to Jersey City uh, before the revolution. I think in 1957, he's a huge baseball fan. Um, uh, Almendada's fan, and, and and they were actually able to listen to some games uh, in New Jersey. Uh, so then one day he gets home from 
from school and his dad says, Hey, that they're, they're, they're looking for a bat boy. And, and so he, he went ahead and, uh, uh, entered the contest and, and was one of the two boys that won. He ended up being with the, the Jersey's, uh, bat boy and the, the boy who finished second, uh, was the bat boy for the visiting teams. Yeah. Talking about your research for this. I mean, what did you learn from your research about baseball in Cuba that was particularly helpful? I mean, uh, did you go through some of the old newspaper clippings in, in Havana? And uh, I'm sure you did the sporting news because they were, they were very detailed as far as the Cuban league goes. Yeah, that was the great thing. Uh, the, the sporting news really was the baseball Bible. Um, and they uh, covered not just the Cuban league, but uh, all the Latin leagues uh, every week, um, you know, with uh, stories dedicated to each league, um, usually a feature story. And then like a, a quick recount of all the, the weeks, the, the, the week's games. Um, uh, so they were very, de- very detailed in terms of covering the, the Cuban league. Um, and being a member of Sabre, the Society for um, uh, American uh, Baseball Research, um, I was able to, I, you have access to uh, this database, searchable database of the, of all the sporting news. So that, that's, that was really helpful. Um, the University of Miami has a Diario La Marina, which is a paper in Havana, uh, one of the papers in Havana. They have that available on, a, uh, on, on the web as well. Uh, and also, you know, the New York, New York Times, in terms of the coverage of what was going on politically, the revolution, they had a writer based in, in Havana uh, throughout the 50s. Uh, so I, I was able to, you know, read all these, uh, you know, accounts of the day uh, from, from newspapers and the sporting news, which was a huge a huge help. And then, of course, the, the interviews I was able to do with the players I was able to find that were still around. Right. I think you did 20 or 21 players. And I think uh, you talked about the one you did with Orlando Pena, which was more more or less, I think you said it was more like a monologue from him as opposed yeah, to you yeah. asking a lot of questions. Yeah, it was terrific. Uh, you know, I, he works at the uh, radio station in Miami. Um, and and I got a, I'd been trying to reach him forever, uh, you know, and, and just he didn't know me, so never responded to my my messages. But I called one of the, the guys working at the station and he uh, got him on the phone for me. I, I made my pitch and, and he said, come by the station next time you're in town and, and we'll talk. And it was terrific. It was, he was basically was, was just, he held court, uh, um, and told uh, all these amazing stories. Uh, uh, it was a terrific uh, interview. And then he put you on the radio. Yeah, I, I was not expecting that. I figured, okay, interview's over. I'll go home. I'll have dinner. And then they were like him, him and the, the, the guy who, who uh, is the host of the show, like, well, you should come on. And I'm like, uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I called my wife and my, we were visiting my family at the time, called my parents and said, yeah, I'm not going to make it for dinner because this happened. And they were like, yeah, forget dinner, get out, get on the radio. Um, it was, it was, it was fun. Uh, so that was my, uh, my first Spanish language, uh, appearance on, uh, on, on and I radio. guess you held up pretty well. I, I survived. <laughs> Now, in this in this second book, from start to finish, how long did it take you to complete the project? When did you start it? Well, I started it as I was uh, promoting the, the first book. Um, you know, I pretty much knew, uh, you know, I would always be asked, like, what's going to be the next book? And I just kind of knew, well, it's going to be about this particular time period. Uh, so I started gathering articles and, and making phone calls, trying to reach some of these uh, players. So, I, you know, you know, the book came out in twenty. 15 so probably you know 2016 while i was out trying to promote it i was already 
doing interviews and, and gathering articles and, and whatever information I could. Um, in terms of the writing, you know, itself, um, I, I was able to write it uh, in a in a year, uh, pretty much a, a, a chapter a month, and that's kind of the pace I uh, hoped to do, set for myself, and and I was able to do that. Now, in your research, what did you learn that really surprised you the most when you looked at it and went, "Wow, I didn't know that." Oh gosh, uh, you know, having researched it for so long, um, you know, I, I knew a lot of the. I knew a lot of it, right? Um, certainly, the broad strokes. Uh, you know, as I was writing, I realized I would realize that I needed to drill down. Uh, you know, on specific things, or I didn't have all the information about a, a given game or a given event. Um, the hardest thing for me really was, you know, getting myself up to speed on what was going on with the political upheaval with the revolution, and then trying to. Uh, sort of synthesize that. I wanted to give um, enough of that part of the story so that people would understand what was going on, the context uh, that this baseball story is told in, uh, but without, you know, going so far in the weeds that uh, you lose sight of the, the baseball stuff. So, uh, you know, that was the hardest thing for me in, in terms of learning something. I'll tell you that the, the sort of shocking thing, surprising thing I actually learned in the first book uh, and I, I wrote about it uh, when the Dodgers were in, in spring training in Cuba um, to find out that Dixie Walker had basically invented um, those uh, uh, base protect the, the 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 fencing that they use during infield. Oh right, right, right. Because the coach got hit with a with a ball or something. Yeah, Maddie and Burns. you know that Dixie Walker um, uh, he owned a sporting goods store back in Birmingham, Alabama, with his family, and a guy got hit during. Uh, BP it during infield, and so he sort of fashioned this, um, you know, this uh, this fencing, you know, to, to protect the guys that first, second, and third during BP, so they wouldn't get hit while they were while they were doing infield, you know, something that you now see like everywhere, right? You see, you know, but the fact yeah, you that take that, it for granted, yeah, sure. yeah, but the fact that this was created in Cuba in spring training by this guy from the Dodgers. Uh, uh, I just thought, you know, this is a very inside baseball thing, but I just love that. I, I just thought that was really, really cool. Oh, yeah. Did you find it more challenging to write the second book? Uh, like I said, because of the, uh, because it wasn't just about baseball, um, you know, you're, uh, because I had to, you know, learn and write about uh, all the specifics about uh, the revolution and the what was going on politically. That part of it absolutely was more challenging and trying to, trying to mix that in. Uh, but I, having gone through the experience of the first book, I did find that I, I, I wrote more efficiently, if that makes sense, uh, this time around. Uh, maybe, maybe I was more disciplined, or, um, but uh, um, you know, the first one took like about a year and a half or so, and there were there were months where I didn't write a single chapter. I just did other, I researched or did something else. Uh, um, but uh, I definitely was was more efficient just having gone through the process but uh, but yeah trying to trying to become a you know political scientist uh, you know while i was doing this was that was the uh, the challenging part definitely well i mean you're efficient in your writing but this uh, i noticed in this book you just had a, your style seemed a lot more comfortable in the first one you know maybe the first book you were getting your getting your feet wet but this this book was much more relaxed in tone and much more comfortable to me i mean i got the sense that you relaxed more oh thank you i'm glad glad to hear that 
you know, you just never know how a book's going to be received. So, uh, you know, you, you do your best and, and, uh, and you hope people like it. Uh, so uh, I'm glad to hear that. Well, here's the part of the interview where I ask you, you know, what have I missed as an interview? What is there anything you'd like to add about this book that hasn't been mentioned? I mean, what 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 should people take from this from this book? Well, uh, I guess. To, or have I been so thorough that we can't answer well, that? Well, no, I, I, I think just the, you know, the, uh, you know, baseball in Cuba and the, the connection between baseball in Cuba and baseball in the U.S., uh, just how, how deep it ran, um, you know, going back uh, really to the, you know, late uh, 1890s, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the first barnstorming team with uh, – John McGraw, you know, uh, coming through there, and then, you know, all the Negro League teams that uh, that barnstormed in Cuba, Negro League players who played in the Cuban League, all the Americans that 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 came to Cuba, but then also all the Cuban players that came to the Negro Leagues and the majors. Just that connection, that uh, free flow of of talent uh, for for decades. Um, you know, just that, you know, we, you know, you see a hint of that only today because of the guys who have defected. Uh, but you know, before 1959, before 1961, which is when the Cuban League folded, you know that was just common. That was that's what happened. Uh, you know, guys played played in Cuba, and Cuban players uh, came here, and and we lost that uh, for decades uh, because of the revolution. There were all these play all these players that um, probably you know could have been just as good as uh you know the the Tony Perez's and the Tony Oliva's of, of, of the world that, that we saw here, but that uh, American fans just never got the chance to see. Um, you know, now we, we, you know, Major League Baseball has come up with this uh, agreement now with, with Cuba. We'll see what happens there, but, um, you know, it, it appears that as, as long as the, the Trump administration doesn't uh, uh, mix it, um, it looks like there's now an opening to, to get for those players to get a chance to come here and play and for fans to see more players, I, I think like the, you know, uh, Jose Abreu and, and Cespedes and Puig um, and just see the talent that, that, uh, that's always been there. Yeah. That's just a taste. I mean, it's been 60 years since they have the open pipeline, but yeah, you're right. Those guys have been, been outstanding and there's probably some guys playing in Cuba right now that could come over and step right into the majors. It's possible. Yeah. Hopefully we'll find out. Oh, yeah, I agree. And, 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 you know, if you have this exchange, you know, maybe that will help facilitate uh, some kind of change back in Cuba. Mm -hmm. So do you look at this as a sports book or a history book or a combination of both? Uh, it's a combination of both. I mean, what I, what I say is, you know, it, it's a baseball story told within the context of the political upheaval in Cuba at the time. Um, because I think you needed to tell both stories in order to really get the full picture. Um, because one impacted the other. Um, um, but I mean, but it is at, at its heart a baseball story. It's just told within the context of the, what was going on politically in Cuba. This has been very interesting for me. Uh, I enjoyed this type of interview and I know, I know your time is valuable, but, do it, but tell me, uh, do you have another project in the works? Uh, well, um, I've been thinking about it. Like, do I want to do another, another baseball, uh, book? Um, and what I'm, what I think I've landed on is I, I want to tell the story of my family in Cuba. 
Um, you know, and I, I included some of that in this book, um, you know, with, with the, the opening story and then uh, just sort of in the introduction and, and at the end, you, you got some sense of, of what my family went through. Um, you know, and I, I know I have a, a, a lot of amazing stories from them. What I have to try to figure out is do I have enough to that I can weave it together in a in a narrative worthy of a book. Um, so I think unlike the first two books where I saw I you know I I, I accepted the the uh, I put out a proposal um, it was accepted and I I knew I could get to the end point. Uh, this one I think I want to write completely and make sure that I that I do it justice before I even submit it to publishers. Um, but I, I think that's where I want to go next. Well, we've been speaking with Cesar Brioso, author of Last Seasons in Havana, The Castro Revolution, and The End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. Thank you, Cesar, for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it, too. You've been listening to New Books in Sports, the channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters.